Hello and welcome to Caged In Pigcast, the unofficial accompaniment podcast to Michael Zarnowski's Pig. So far in the series, I have spoken to editor Brett Buckman, writer and producer Vanessa Block, and actor David Nell. As for this week's episode, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down and talking to chef Chris Zarnecki, who, if you've seen the like neon little promo video that they've put out taught nick how to look like a chef for this movie and it's his mum's recipe that was used that fantastic mushroom tart we get in the first act of this film we do go into some light spoilers so if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet please do be sure if you're in the us you can currently rent it on all vod platforms and in the uk we only have a week to wait it will be out on the 20th of August in cinemas. There's also some technical difficulties with this episode. Some of the audio was slightly lost, but you don't miss out on too much. Obviously, we recorded over Zoom, so these things do happen. But be rest assured, there's some great stuff in there. separates you from every other art form because the person, the customer, is ingesting the art and that to me is a lot more pressure than a painting because they're taking it home with them and they're going to sleep with it. Exactly. Today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by chef owner of the Joel Palmer House restaurant, Oregon native and cooking consultant on pig. Chris Zarnecki. How are you, Chris? Excellent. How are you today? I'm, I'm very well. I'm, I'm excited to be talking to it's you. 11, it's 11 a.m. where I am. Where are you, where are you calling it from? Uh, I'm calling in from the UK. So the time here is 7 p.m. So not too bad. I've had uh, worse time zones to deal I with. <laughs> um, so, well, yeah, one of the things I wanted to speak about, first of all, was um, obviously from looking up the Joel Palmer and um, yeah, on your site, it says that it's very much been a family business, like cooking. Was that always something you wanted to get into, or were you like reticent to become a chef yourself? Well, you know, it's an excellent question. Truth be told, uh, you know, hanging out in the bar at my parents' restaurant back in Reading, Pennsylvania, you know, in the third grade, the fourth grade, I was always enchanted by the ballet, the, the dance that goes on, you know, the communication between front and back. You know, seeing servers move quickly but quietly, uh, seeing how everybody had their their role and their place and, and, you know, all work together to create this elaborate, you know, excellent dining experience in the fine dining world. And, yeah, it was definitely enchanting, not to mention getting to go to some of the world's best restaurants and, get you know, watching dad get treated like a celebrity. You know? <laughs> so that was that was definitely entertaining. But. But, you know, honestly, I did not get into it because I love to cook. I got into it because I love to eat. <laughs> and uh, I figured, you know, I could figure out the skills along the way. Mm-hmm. So 
when I came home from the army, uh, actually it was home on leave from Iraq that my parents said, Hey, we're making our five, 10 year plan. Do you want to join us in the restaurant? And so I jumped on it and here I am 15 years later. <laughs> how, how do you, um, I don't know, like obviously the, the skills you would have learned, like being in the army and stuff like that. Do you think that kind of helped you for that? Like, I don't know, like the kind of the discipline it sometimes takes to be in a kitchen is that has that kind of helped you in some regards to the oh for sure yeah i mean i'll, I'll give a joke with people once in a while and say nothing prepares you for the restaurant business like having served in a combat zone yeah <laughs> um, you know yeah you do learn to eat a lot of shit in the army you know <laughs> i don't know if this is a rated podcast or not but it's that a lot of people tend to get really worked up about um you learn how to pick your battles so to speak um and it allows you to, you know, really focus on the really important things in life. And I think my fellow veterans will attest to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what, yeah, what is your family's history with restaurants? Obviously it's multi-generational, right? Yeah. So the original Joe's restaurant opened uh, in 1916 in Reading, Pennsylvania. It was in a, a Polish part of town serving Polish, you know, uh, working men and uh, run by my great-grandparents who were, you know, Polish immigrants. When my grandparents took over, they were the Francophiles. They were the ones in love with French fine dining. And my grandfather was an amateur mycologist. Uh, he was the guy who the local hospitals would call if a toddler ate a mushroom off, off, off the front lawn <laughs> and poison control needed it identified. So uh, when my parents took over in 1975, they uh, they said, all right, well, Instead of being a Polish-French fusion restaurant, you know, this is decades before the term fusion cooking ever yeah. thing, um, they said, let's, let's not be an Italian restaurant, let's not be a French restaurant, Polish restaurant, steakhouse, let's be a mushroom restaurant. Amazing. And let's maintain the fine dining theme. And let, by being a mushroom restaurant, that allowed them the freedom to pull ingredients from all over the world. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom's half German, so I'm the fourth generation to be running the restaurant but the first one not to be 100 percent polish <laughs> and uh you know we use elements from all over the world you know chinese five spice on our duck you know we use uh, foie gras we use you know maine lobster uh, you know we use curry in our quinoa uh and it's fun having that kind of freedom and tying it all back to mushrooms in some way or another even in our desserts and cocktails so i guess one of the things that is um big in in the film pig and obviously you, you you may have some knowledge on as well is truffles um not to sound ignorant here and obviously anyone who's listening what is a truffle truffle is a fungus mm-hmm. but it's not a mushroom oh. um truffles form a uh, mycorrhizal relationship with the trees it's a symbiotic relationship where uh trees that have truffles associated with with their roots are known to grow taller faster you know, if you've seen the movie that just came out recently, uh, Fantastic Fungi, they go into great depth about how the uh, the microorganisms and the fungus in particular have such a huge impact on the biodiversity and the health of the soil and the environment in which things grow. You know, winemakers have known this for a long time, knowing that uh, not using pesticides and allowing nature to do its thing and work its magic actually makes more interesting, more complex wines. So the truffle spores are spread a lot like seeds. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not very uh, magical or romantic, but <laughs> rodents will do their thing. They'll smell the delicious truffle. They'll go through the digestive system. The rodent goes to somewhere else in the woods, does his business. And then those, those truffle spores will attach themselves to the young 
roots of the tree, the youngest roots, which uh, follow the path of least resistance often towards the surface. Mm -hmm. And then that bond happens and they start feeding each other. Amazing. So, um, and then then after a few weeks you get, you get truffles. What is it that is so special about truffles? Would you say? Oh, what's so special about chocolate? How do you describe (laughs) something if you've never tasted it? Right. How do you just, how would you describe what chocolate smells and tastes like? You can't, there's nothing else to compare it to. And the same is true with truffles. Unfortunately, uh, they have managed to duplicate those primary compounds and create truffle oil, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is one of the things that you know Gordon Ramsay and other chefs will rail against, <laughs> so overused. But once you smell a, a real properly ripened truffle for the first time, a real one, yeah, it's it's pretty mind changing. And is is the depiction of truffle hunting in the film? Is that how it's still done today? It is just a man out in there in the woods just hunting for those bad boys not at all well i mean yes and no <laughs> uh, mostly pigs are not used anymore yeah. um uh, and the director writer uh, michael sarnowski he basically said yeah we knew that but come on pigs are cuter <laughs> sometimes and, and they made it for a little more romantic and that's cool uh you know predominantly dogs are used and uh you know oftentimes no animals are used uh he wasn't lying when he said he just knows where to find them yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if he's reading the trees per se in a mystical sort of way, but uh, it is true that if you know what kind of trees to look for uh, in the right type of uh, climate and environment, uh, you don't need an animal to find them. As long as you're careful not to destroy the roots of the trees that the truffles are growing on. Amazing. So, yeah, obviously you mentioned Michael Zarnowski there. Um, when were you brought on to, to the film? I want to say it was about 2018 that Vanessa Block and Michael Zarnowski reached out to us. And I think it was, gosh, me, my brother, both my parents and them just sat down at uh, their dinner table and just started talking mushrooms and truffles. (laughs) Um, And it was one of those things where here we are, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, Dayton, Oregon, right? It's like, okay, Hollywood's coming to town. We didn't really get our hopes up much. And, uh, I think at one point, uh, at least one other actor's name came up because they were pretty nice about reaching out once in a while and just saying, hey, here's how the progress is going. Uh, but then once they, once we found out that uh, Nicolas Cage was starring, um, we were like, oh, I think I've heard of him before. <laughs> you know. <clears throat> and so we got excited. And, uh, October of 2019 is when he came into town to do the filming. So what was, like, obviously you're, yeah, Vanessa said you're a consultant on the film when I spoke to her. So what did that entail with with, with your role on the film? Well, it started off with uh, talking a lot about my mom's three mushroom tart mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film. It uh, uh, comes on the screen as rustic <laughs> mushroom tart. That's all right. Not everybody knows who Heidi is. And, um, yeah, so the converse pre Nicolas Cage was just a lot about, you know, yeah, sending the recipe, you know, what kind of mushrooms, where can we find the mushrooms, sort of thing. And of course, more talk about truffles in general. And then, uh, well, he was supposed to spend a whole day in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was supposed to have spent some time uh, in the kitchen of another chef he knows. So I was expecting him to have some knowledge of, you know, how to slice an onion, things like mm-hmm. that. And uh, that was one of the first questions I asked. I said, all right, did you? get to your pre-training time and he's like oh no it's like okay we're starting from scratch <laughs> and i i laid right into him too i was like do you wash your hands you got to roll your sleeves up um you know just little things about cleanliness and if you're walking behind somebody you know call behind you know uh, i had not read the script at that point 
And so I didn't know how much time was going to be spent in a kitchen or, or, or cooking, but I was going to treat him like I would anybody else off the street. Here's, here are the do's and don't do's of, of working in a kitchen. Uh, in fact, I said to him earlier, I was like, <clears throat> have you ever seen uh, Julia, Julia about Julia Child? You yeah. know, that uh, book that got turned into I was like, do what she did. Go buy a whole sack of onions, take it back to your hotel room, get a knife and a cutting board from Fred Meyer and just start practicing. Amazing. You know, and uh, I don't know if he didn't end up doing that either. But <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, during the filming, and I've joked about this before, um, but <laughs> I was adamant about using the claw method. You know, when you're hold, you hold the food here yep. and you slice here so that, you know, you're not taking your fingertips off. And yep. I don't know if there's ever going to be some cool behind the scene footage because they filmed that whole day in the kitchen. I was like, you know, this is how you can do it. And then I can, you can look away, you can keep doing your thing and you're not have to worry about chopping fingers off. And I think he got it. I think it clicked. <laughs> but the next day when I was on set, he, uh, he had some mushrooms that my brother had picked that day and he takes the knife and he starts banging away. I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> I'm going to be the worst culinary consultant in the world. He didn't learn a thing. Uh, but thankfully that did not make it into the film. And the one half second shot that only a food nerd like me would notice uh, is that he was, in fact, holding the mushrooms correctly as he was chopping them. You mentioned about that behind-the-scenes stuff. I know that Neon recently put out a clip that is... This morning? Yeah, yeah, you and Nick in the kitchen. Like, um, And obviously one of the things you talk about is the kind of artistic nature of food. Like, What other kind of things were you talking about with, with, with Nick in regards to food? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, number one, yeah, we are putting food into people's bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to be cognizant of all the safety issues revolving around that and talking about i mean artistically speaking uh, i don't know about you but i want my food hot mm -hmm. i mean cold food's cold obviously yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know there's a reason why chefs have become famous for you know yelling and screaming it's because your reputation is on the line with every single plate that crosses the line mm -hmm. so doing it safely uh, getting food out hot uh not only do you want it hot but you also don't want your sauce drying up and getting ugly you don't want your flowers wilting underneath the he kind of talked about, um, <laughs> but, you know, he was definitely starting to get the vibe of the heart and soul that goes into it. Yeah. You know, he talks a little bit more, his, you, you see his light, his eyes light up when he got to taste something he helped create. Yeah, 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 definitely. You know, it may not have been his recipe, whatever, but he had his hand in it. And as any cook, home cook, professional chef will tell you, uh, there's, there's nothing quite like the sensation of tasting something delicious that you created. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time I've kind of cooked a meal, even if it's just following a recipe. And I think you get that sense, especially if it's something, I don't know, you've over time learned or it becomes your dish, as it were. Like you get that mm -hmm. great, like overwhelming sense of achievement when, when you cook a dish. And it is, um, yeah, it's just so special. Uh, well, I guess... What, one of the other things that this film deals with, in a way, is the gentrification of Portland. Obviously, as a uh, like living in Oregon, like how do you how how do you perceive that for like how how the film deals with that, like and how does the the kind of restaurant scene play into that for you? Well, I would say for better and for worse, mm -hmm. uh, Portland restaurant scene has mostly avoided that gentrification. Yeah. I mean. A lot of my guests do dine at Michelin restaurants all over the world, you know, for breakfast. Mm -hmm. um, and so they expect a certain level of quality food and a certain level of quality service. But one thing you're not going to find in Portland 
is, you know, stuffy waiters with, you know, tuxedos and bowing and yeah. white gloves and all the nonsense that go, can go into, uh, you know, the ultra, you know, fine dining scene. Portland is all about the food. You know, there's a lot of great chefs, but it's not stuffy at all. Um, you know, I would say the only downside to that is it's almost too casual. Some people do like a more formal environment, yeah. you know, where, uh, you know, the waiters aren't squatting down at the table and saying, <laughs> how, you, how are you guys doing today? Yeah. You know, they want there to be a certain amount of professional distance in their dining experience. So as far as like gentrification goes, I can't speak to, uh, you know, zoning and construction and stuff, <laughs> but at least as far as the restaurant scene is concerned, Portland is a really laid back city. Amazing. Um, and another thing that the film deals with uh, is the kind of passion that chefs have like how well do you think it kind of captures that because it obviously deals with that thing that how important food is and kind of what it can yeah what it can do to people like what's your takeaway from the film on that on that regard i don't know i don't really know how they did it but they hit the nail right on the head <laughs> honestly you know what's the line you know you only get so many things to really care about yeah you know you do really sink your heart and soul into this. And whether you choose to do it for the rest of your life or not, you do take it with you mm -hmm. for the rest of your life. And, you know, his, Nick's character is, you know, traumatized by factors outside the restaurant industry. I don't know if that's made really clear in the movie, but, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but he didn't leave the restaurant industry. But he left the restaurant industry for a specific reason. Yeah. And, um, you know, but, but getting back to your point, yeah, you really do have to sink your heart and soul into it. That's both the pleasure and the challenge of doing it. Oh, definitely. Um, and <laughs> I guess I guess I need I need to ask ask this question. I'd be uh, is is there a um, hidden fight club that runs in Portland just for chefs? <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> um, but who knows? Keep Portland weird is what they say. You, you never know. Yeah, I think as I said to um, Vanessa Block, with that kind of aspect of it, it does, it does capture the kind of I don't know. Every time I've worked in a the kitchen, there is this certain mania to chefs. Do you know what I mean? You've almost got to be crazy enough to do it. So I guess that's like a, a very artistic way of showing how how they kind of l would let off steam at the end of it. Uh, did you say artistic or autistic? Art, 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 artistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you meant. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, we often joke about, you know, all being a bunch of ADD, ADHD people. Yeah. And, you know, Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential, yeah. you know, gives a great insight into the, also the not so great parts, the drugs, the, you know, all the craziness that can go into it. But, I mean, shit, man, you're talking about 12 hour days, potentially 100, 130 degree kitchens, humidity, yeah. you know, tough environments, you know. It, you can, you can understand why you have to be of a certain mindset in order to live that way for such a long time. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess, yeah, like, well, what, yeah, what, what is it like, what was it about that specific dish that, that they, that Michael and like Vanessa said, well, did they kind of sort out that dish or were you, were you asked to kind of pitch a dish that, that Rob would cook in the film? And I don't remember, actually. I, I don't know. I don't remember which came first. Did uh, <clears throat> did we recommend that dish or did they find it and ask about it? I don't know. It's a chicken or the egg scenario. <laughs> um, 
but it is it is fitting for you know uh the character he's portraying for sure i mean it's an earthy dish it's my mom's dish it's yeah. one we've been serving since the mid 80s i'd say and uh really fundamentally has not changed since then Amazing. and uh it's one of our classics never coming off the menu perfect well chris it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much for your time um absolutely yeah um so if any uh u.s listeners are listening where can they where can they find the restaurant what's the what's the best way to the best way is our website www.joelpalmerhouse.com uh, i'm on facebook uh, but i'm not really cool enough to be doing much on tiktok and instagram yet, <laughs> so. amazing again thank you so much for your time chris my pleasure thank you Thank you again for listening. It means the bloody world to me. And thank you very much to Chris Zanecki for his time. If you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's something I wanted to talk to you guys about as well. Um, if you follow me on social media, you may be aware of a little mission I've kind of been on of trying to track down Nicolas Cage himself in the same way that Chef Robin Feld is trying to track down his pig. So I've kind of like shook every branch that I could. I got to the point where I can now say I have emailed Nicolas Cage's manager. I'm not sure how many people can say that. Like I, I genuinely, when I started this podcast, never thought I would be at a place where I could say I have emailed Nicolas Cage's manager. Unfortunately, he told me Nick is not interested at this moment. But one of the biggest tidbits I got from his email is he corrected me on my spelling of Nick. And I feel like Edward Snowden kind of dropping a massive bomb or like Julian Assange leaking this big bombshell on people. But it's Nick with a K. I'm not sure where this has come from that it's kind of seeped into popular parlance that it is N-I-C, but it is N-I-C-K. I'm not sure if you listening to this or if you've already read it on my Twitter or Instagram, but that is mind-blowing stuff, right? That it is Nick with a K. Um, it kind of overshadows the whole thing that obviously... I got so close to the sun of speaking to the man himself. Although I probably didn't, because there was probably never a chance even sending that email that I'd be able to speak to him. But I'm still going to press on. I think there are other ways in which I can try and speak to Nick Cage, whether it's that it's kind of trying to jump on some kind of junket when he's promoting a film here in the UK. Who knows? If you have any links to anyone whether it is kind of uh, distributors in the UK who are putting out Nick Cage films I know that Elysian films in the UK are putting out Prison of the Ghostland and Altitude films again I've I've emailed those guys uh, I've had I've, <laughs> I've had a reply I sent a reply and a follow-up email and uh, I haven't heard anything but um yeah I just thought I would update you guys on my kind of crazy search to speak to Nick Cage it kind of very much feels fitting for a film where he plays a man searching for his pig and I guess in a way 
Nick Cage is very much my prized truffle pig to this podcast, so it almost feels fitting that I would talk to him about this film and obviously try and sneak in some questions about other beloved films from the past, if I could be so bold. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, just wanted to fill you in on that. So I've been Petrus Pat Syllabus. This has been another Caged In Pigcast. Remember to keep it caged in, and I'll catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, a Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.